Hello and welcome back to another episode of the I'm Learning Mandarin podcast. On today's podcast, we have a very special guest. He's the YouTube superstar and fluent Japanese speaker, Matt versus Japan. Matt is a well-known face in the language learning community. He's risen to prominence in recent years thanks to his insightful YouTube videos which explain how he managed to reach a near-native level in Japanese while living in the US. Like me, he's a big fan of the linguist Stephen Krashen and is on a mission to popularize language learning methods which prioritize the importance of getting lots of reading and listening input. More recently, he's also taken a keen interest in the question of how we should go about acquiring native-like accents when studying a new language as an adult. We discussed all this and more in a very wide-ranging interview, one of the most fascinating interviews I've ever done. For anyone who's interested in learning more about Matt's story and language learning tips, I've included a link to his YouTube channel and Twitter account at Japan in the description below. Okay, so Matt versus Japan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. Brilliant. So for those who aren't familiar with your backstory, because I'm sure that a lot of my listeners are very familiar with who you are, but for anyone who isn't and who hasn't heard your story, could you give us a brief history of Matt versus Japan and how you came to be fluent by the age of 21 within a short space of time in Japanese? Yeah, yeah. So when I was in high school, I decided that I wanted to learn Japanese. It was kind of something that... I just stumbled onto pretty spontaneously through watching anime and stuff like that. Up until that point, I had no real interest in languages at all or in Japanese or Asia or anything. So, and I started watching anime in high school, had this really strong passion come on, come over me, decided I wanted to learn Japanese. And so first couple years I was doing normal stuff that people typically do when they try to learn a language. I took classes at my high school and I tried to, you know, look online for different tips and tricks. Didn't get really get very far. And then when I was about two years in, I started taking a really intensive self-immersion approach where I started spending as much time as I possibly could just contacting the Japanese language in the form of listening, watching things, reading things, interacting with people, and really try to basically eliminate English from my life as much as I could and just generate my own Japanese environment, even though I was living in the United States. And about six months into this really intensive Japanese immersion. I did study abroad in Japan and I actually didn't have a very good time in Japan because I had only been doing this really intensive immersion approach for half a year at that point. So in Japan, couldn't really communicate with people very well, didn't make a lot of friends and ended up just really focusing on my own studies there. So after six months of a not very fun study abroad experience, I came back to the US. I had made a lot of progress on my Japanese, but I still wasn't really that that I wasn't at the point where you would say I was fluent so I, I was you know feeling pretty regretful of the fact that I'd studied abroad everyone expected me to be fluent in Japanese I still wasn't I dedicated a whole year of my life to Japanese at this point so I wasn't fluent Japanese so I decided to keep doing the self-immersion really intensely and about after two years of that point of continuing to just do everything in my life in Japanese I was also making a lot of Anki flashcards to memorize words I was coming across, and I always used a Japanese to Japanese dictionary. So I had this really intensive, very input-heavy approach. And after about three years total of that approach, two years after I got back from Japan, I was at a pretty strong point of fluency in Japanese. And after hitting that point, I continued to immerse myself in Japanese all the time. And I ended up spending about five years of my life total 
really in this all Japanese all the time world. And so that was from when I was 17 years old to 22 years old. And by that point, I was at a level that is pretty rare for foreigners, especially, you know, Europeaners or Americans to reach in Japanese. And the vast majority of that was outside of Japan. And that was, it was around that point where I made my YouTube channel and I started basically just sharing my experience of how I reached such a high level in Japanese, largely outside of Japan, using this, these pretty, you know, unusual unorthodox approaches and that's kind of what i've been doing up until now learning languages yeah it's an incredible story and that five-year period in which you uh did most of the learning in order to get to that really high level of fluency has then informed your language learning methods that you then promote and suggest in your videos for other people to follow i'm interested in asking a follow-up question about that five-year period because one of the things that i've found in a lot of learners who follow similar methods where they attempt to very early on, and this includes me, immerse in native level material for long periods of time, is that this is can be for a lot of people quite a psychologically stressful experience. You know, when you're new to language learning, when I didn't know any Mandarin, and when I first started trying to immerse in native level material, it would feel like not a particularly pleasant experience, the, the experience of just not understanding anything and just being able to maybe pick out the odd word here and there. What was that psychological experience like for you? Yeah, well, so I've gone through that period a couple of times now. The first time was obviously with Japanese, and then I've done it with a couple other languages that I've dabbled in. And my experience, I, I've realized, has been different each time. So the very first time that I went through it when I, when I was doing it with Japanese, it was relatively smooth for me, I think, because at the time I had got the idea to do this really intensive self-immersion from a, a website I was really inspired by. And I took everything written on that website, like really to heart. And so that website was saying things like, oh, if you, yeah, if you just do this all the time, then you'll be pretty much native level in, in a year and a half or two years from now. And, you know, we all, we all have this magic ability within us to pick up a language like an infant does. So I really believed that, oh, I, all I have to do is show up and listen to the language and my brain will do all, all the heavy lifting for me. And so even though I didn't understand anything, it almost felt like, oh, I'm for me, fluency is right around the corner. And that was so exciting and so exhilarating that it basically allowed me to enjoy the process of sitting there and not understanding pretty much anything. And I also realized that I, there were a lot of times I'd watch a show and I thought that I pretty much understood what, what happened in the show. And then a couple of years later, I'd go back and I'd rewatch that same show once I was fluent in Japanese. And I'd realized that actually I had no idea what was happening in that show. And I was basically just making up a plot in my head as I was going and convincing myself that I understood stuff. So there was this also this weird kind of like delusion that was going on that actually in a way helped me out because it made it feel more engaging. So yeah, I had some interesting psychological stuff going on at the time that I think was really indicative of me being 17 years old doing this. And so, yeah, when some things it's you have the, the oh, there's a phrase in Japanese it's perfect for this, wakage no itari, which basically means this uh, naivete of of youth that sometimes really helps you out when you're doing a crazy thing like trying to build your own Japan inside of your room in America. But when I tried to repeat this for some other languages that I learned later on, yeah, I, I definitely had a similar experience to you where it's really, really difficult and a very, very humbling experience. So I, I think, you know, first of all, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to everybody. I think there's a way that you can start much more moderately and work your way up to it. 
and that's what's going to be best for most people. But there's also a lot of mindset shifts that you can go through that make it a lot more palatable. Like what I what I realized is that what you're doing in that first period of just sitting and listening to the language is you're not you're not doing what most people think of as learning a language, aka learning new words and learning grammar. What you're doing at first is just training your brain to be able to parse the sound system and be able to actually hear all of the different vowels and consonants and intonation patterns that exist in the language and process all of those sounds quickly enough in real time so that you can hear what's going on. And that's a prerequisite to being able to actually acquire words and, and grammar structures. So it, of course, you're not going to be picking up words from day one, because if you can't, sounds are, words are made up of sounds. And if you can't hear the sounds, you can't, therefore, you can't really pick out words very well either. So you have to really go through this mindset shift of thinking of it as I'm sitting here and acquiring the sound system and also have a lot of faith in the process that it actually, something's going to happen by you sitting there. But yeah, it's a, it's a, in a way, I want to recommend it to everybody just because it's such an interesting experience and you learn so much about yourself and about your own psychology from it. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I would say if you give it a shot and it's too intense, then this doesn't mean that, you know, the rest of my advice isn't going to apply to you. I, just... I wonder whether you think it's possible that the, the best kind of advice on this would vary depending on what the language is, as well as who the learner is. I say that because, for example, there's the polyglot, Vladimir Skultetti. So he speaks about 20 languages. Uh, he's a very experienced polyglot. He speaks Chinese, Mandarin to extremely high level C2. And he also studied Japanese for around a year, I think. He made a comparison. He has a video online that made a direct comparison between his experiences of studying Japanese and Mandarin, where he says that when he studied Japanese at the initial stages, he found it much, much easier to be able to pick out individual words that he learned when then listening to it in a native context, whereas when he studied Mandarin, because of all the homophones, it was much more difficult to do that. And so I've not studied Japanese, so I, I wouldn't know, but I I wonder whether you're open to the idea that it might vary depending on the language. I mean, there's going to be a lot that definitely varies up upon the language, but mm. I don't know if that means the approach that you should take ideally would, would vary. Uh, one thing that does vary a lot that, I, that over the past few years I, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about is there, what your final goal is in a language would actually change the approach you take from day one if, if I was going to basically construct someone an ideal study plan for somebody. So what, what I've noticed is that when you when you learn from the beginning using a lot of, of text-based materials, like you, you read in the language, you learn words through the written form, and you do that alongside listening to the language, that really changes the way that, you're, that your brain processes the language compared to if you try to learn a language entirely just through listening and just through sound. You had a fascinating interview on this with a guy who learned Japanese, uh, who's like a friend of yours, who learned Japanese purely through listening, right? Like I was watching that recently. Yes, yes. Yeah, meeting him was uh, one of the big reasons that my thinking started to change on this topic, because I realized that uh, I learned Japanese through doing a lot of reading and a lot of listening side by side. And, you know, I, I was very successful in learning Japanese, but... I didn't achieve a really native accent just naturally. I had to go back and do a lot of work to fix certain aspects of my Japanese pronunciation. Whereas this other friend, he got a lot closer to having a, a native-like accent in the language just, just through getting tons and tons of input. And I think it does have to do with the fact that he learned through listening and not through reading. I think when you, when you read, 
first of all, as as a human adult, we're very biased towards our visual sense. Like I, I've read somewhere that from a neuroscience perspective, 80% of the information that, that we get about our environment around us comes from our eyes and 20% on all the other senses. And so when you when you see a word written down, that has a really strong impact on the brain. I think more than hearing it, especially at the beginning, because at the beginning, you know, we we your ears aren't attuned to that language yet. So the, the language sounds very blurry. It's very hard to remember. It feels very slippery and vague. Whereas if you can see letters in front of you, that feels so crystal clear, even from day one. And so when you rely on these letters and you that's how you learn words, that's kind of how the information ends up getting formatted in your brain. It gets stored as letters in a way. And then when you go to listen to the language, you're, you're listening for the letters that you memorized. And so it's like you have this bias filtering everything going into your ears that, you know, putting it into these boxes. You're hearing the language in terms of the expectations that you built through the letters. And I think that has a, I mean, in a way, it, it, in a sense, it does speed up the language learning process because when you know what, what you're trying to listen for, your brain's going to find it a lot more easily. And so you can make language gains a lot more quickly. But in the long term, I think what it ends up building a kind of skewed model of the sound system in your brain. And then when you go to speak the language, you use this skewed sound system and it's going to result in having more of a foreign accent. So I, I, I think this doesn't necessarily mean that everybody should learn a language just through audio because it's much more difficult and it takes uh, it probably is going to take longer overall. But for people who are really interested in getting a native accent, I think that taking that sort of approach is going to be better. And so that's something we were talking about what I, I think that difference right there matters more than what specific language are you actually tackling. I think if you're talking about Japanese versus Chinese, it's less a matter of your approach should differ and it's more a matter of for the length of time it's going to take to get through each phase of the process might differ. So maybe that initial process of training your ears takes a lot longer for Mandarin than it does for Japanese. But what you're actually doing would be the same. But the psychological distress might differ is what I was trying to get at. I mean, like that if it's a lot more difficult at the beginning to pick out individual words that you've learned when you're listening to native material, then it might be much more psychologically stressful when you try to immerse from day one in just native level material. If you just sit in front of Chinese TV and, and just trying to immerse in that, then I think a lot of people would find that very distressing. And I've never learned Japanese, so I wouldn't know whether... Uh, what that experience would be like in, in Japanese, but there may be some differences there at the psychological level of what those experiences are like, I, I, I guess. What you said was really interesting, the point about your friend and, and the advantages of learning through listening alone. I interviewed someone on this podcast who's a friend of mine who I'm very jealous of because he has a near-native level Beijing accent, which is the most prized asset <laughs> in Mandarin learning. He told an interesting story about what he basically did for the first year of his Mandarin learning. He took a module at university and basically that wasn't really that important, but he would go home and then just get a tape recorder and all of the phonetic components of Mandarin were included in the, in the recording on a CD that he had from some textbook and he would just spend hours just basically repeating th these phonetics, <laughs> which is um, an interesting kind of approach, but it seemed to work really well for him and he did that before going into any kind of learning to read characters. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't sound very surprising to me because that basically doing this type of approach of working really closely with the sound very early on, I started to think more and more it is a really good idea because this basically one of the biggest differences, I think, between adults and infants from a language learning perspective, there's a few key differences. But one of the biggest differences is that we know from research that's been done that infants can basically distinguish between any 
all phonemes of all languages when they're when they're first born. But as they as they get older, very quickly they start to only be able to differentiate between the phonemes that exist in the languages that that exist in their environment. And distinctions between phonemes that that aren't important for the languages in their environment, they stop being able to hear around nine months of age. So us as adults, we a lot of times we can't hear the specific differences between the phonemes that exist in the language we want to learn. And so by spend, working really hard to train your ears to become attuned to the sound system very early on, in a way you're kind of catching yourself up to the same starting line that an infant's at when an infant's going to acquire a new language. In this sense, you didn't take the optimal approach to trying to achieve a near native accent, but nevertheless, you have managed to get to somewhere near like a near native accent in Japanese. Can you tell us a bit about how you how you went about doing that? Yeah, well, so for me, I what I did have going for me really well in learning Japanese was I did have a ton of of input, and I was doing this thing where I had a little iPod that I'd keep in my pocket with Japanese playing. And I'd have a he- two headphones like hanging out of my shirt, and whenever I had literally more than three seconds to spare, I would put one of the headphones in and be listening to Japanese. And this was something I did throughout the whole five-year period where I was immersing myself really intensely. So, having heard Japanese for so many hundreds of hours, that did give me a really good head start. So when I started speaking, I had a, a decent intuition for what the language was supposed to sound like. Because my ears got trained gradually over time through doing all of this mass listening, and so I could generally hear when I was off and when I when I was actually hitting the mark. So I, I could make lots of micro adjustments through speaking and kind of just rely on my own intuition that I trained through this input. But there were also aspects that I didn't pick up through the input. The main one being something called pitch accent, which is a really important component of Japanese phonetics, where basically every Word in Japanese is pronounced with a specific melody, and if you pronounce it with the wrong melody, then sometimes that actually means you're pronouncing the wrong word. So it's very similar to tones in Chinese, but the main difference being that Chinese tones are something that play out on a per syllable basis. Every syllable in Chinese has a tone, whereas in Japanese every word has a pitch accent. So the word, a single word, becomes the the smallest unit of this aspect of the of the phonetic system. So this is something that. I just completely didn't pick up, and I would mix up left and right, and and this is not something unique to me. I've I've now observed very clearly that it's extremely rare for a foreigner learning Japanese to pick up pitch accent without doing some kind of direct work to study it directly. My friend Ken Cannon, who I mentioned a little bit ago, who learned Japanese just through listening, he's one of the only people I've seen. Maybe him and one or two other people who've actually managed to. Mostly acquire pitch accent through listening, where it wasn't perfect. It's like you know maybe ninety percent around there. Still, still not close to the level of accuracy of, of a native. And well, the interesting thing I've noticed is a lot of Chinese people who learn Japanese, they will acquire pitch accent to a pretty high level. It's not generally to a perfect level unless they've really worked on it specifically, but much more than than Westerners do. So I think this has to do with biases that we have from our native language. Whereas Chinese people, they they their brain understands how tones work, so they're already predisposed to look for basically relationships between lexical meaning and shifts in pitch. Whereas in English and most European languages, there is no strict relationship between pitch and lexical meaning. So our our brains aren't are, are totally biased against looking for patterns in this domain. And the other thing about about Japanese is that. 
you can get by with with ignoring pitch accent. You can still understand Japanese and you can resolve the ambiguities just based on context. And when you speak with the wrong pitch accent, the native speakers can generally resolve any ambiguity in that due to mistakes you're making with context. So it's easy to kind of get by and, and not even realize that you're totally butchering this aspect of the language, especially since Japanese people are very polite and very rarely give you brutally honest feedback about your speech. <laughs> it's incredible that everything you're saying could be directly applied to my experiences of Mandarin. I basically went through, I conducted a long experiment on myself to see whether it was possible to just acquire tone, Mandarin tones through immersion alone. I basically knew tones existed and that there were four of them and uh, basically could pronounce them more or less and then did a ton of input and and saw what happened. And I've documented what happened on my blog and everything that I've had to do ever since then to uh, basically correct that. So when you were saying that like it's very, very rare for foreigners to be to be able to pick up pitch accent through just naturalistic immersion alone, the exact same thing is true in my experience in my experience of tones for the exactly the same reasons that our, our brains just are not attuned to that aspect of the language and are in fact in fact deliberately ignore that because from an early age, if our brains thought that tonal information was important in that way, can you imagine how weird we would sound when, when speaking English? Like Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I like that point because a lot of people, I, I think when oh, they have this idea that Adults are quote unquote worse language learners than infants because our brains have turned into mush as we got older, right? And we, we, we've, we've you know, deteriorated through age, but that's really not the case. What happened is our brains have become more efficient at processing our native language and becoming more efficient at processing your native language is the same thing as becoming less efficient at processing every other language. It's two sides of the same coin. And so, yeah, it's a very good thing that you're saying, right? That our brains learn to ignore this aspect of speech because basically being able to ignore things that are noise and hone in only on the signal is really key to being able to process anything efficiently. And so, yeah, it only really becomes an issue when now we're trying to go back and learn a totally different language that works in a totally different way. We have to kind of totally uproot that. But I'm curious in your experience, how much did you were you learning just through sound versus doing reading as well? It was a, a combination of both. So I'm definitely not an example of like somebody who took what you would view as the ideal approach from a phonetic perspective of just immersing almost exclusively in audio alone. I actually don't know of very many or any examples actually of on the Chinese of people who've done that. And sometimes I think I, that would be extremely difficult because of the number of homophones in Chinese that like even with the aid of like being able to read how difficult it is and how slow it is to progress and acquire vocabulary through listening with that as an aid I find it sometimes really difficult to believe that there could be someone who like someone could just pick up the language to a very high level just through listening as an adult but I'm definitely open to I don't know if you've come across anyone but I'm kind of open to that idea but I, I haven't come across anyone certainly I wasn't the case of that well I agree I agree that I, I don't know anyone person or I, ha I haven't seen anyone myself either but I do agree it would if it is possible I mean I I would say I, I do think it is possible but I'm sure it would be very difficult but the other thing is every every Chinese baby does that basically right so that, that's what I hear when people are like, oh, but there's so many homophones. How would you? It's like, well, literally a billion babies have done it. So I, I'm sure that's going to be a challenge. But again, I think it comes to doing something similar to the, the, the other 
person who you mentioned of really training your your ears to pick up on the pit the the tones early on because i think basically what happens is there's less variety in terms of vowels and consonants in Chinese, but that is made up for in the fact that there's also tones. So what's happening when, when a Westerner is listening to Chinese is they're not picking up on the tones. They're only picking up on the vowels and consonants, and but there's not very many vowels and consonants there. There's a lot of ambiguity in that kind of sector. So they just have far less information to go off of compared to maybe the brain of a, of a Chinese infant who's actually using the tones as something that that is a component of that differentiates the pronunciation of words. And I know there still is a lot of ambiguity, even if you include the tones, but I still think that's, that's probably one of the main reasons why it feels so difficult is because uh, there's, when you, when you remove the tones, then it's just in a, a whole other level of, of homo, everything sounds the same, right? I wanted to discuss a tweet that you recently sent out, which is on this theme of um, accent acquisition. And if you'll let me, I'll just read out the tweet and then kind of my reaction yes. to this, a couple of thoughts that came up when I when I read this tweet. So I thought it was a really good tweet, very provocative, and it's like created a bit of a storm on, on Twitter with many people agreeing, others disagreeing, this kind of thing. So the tweet reads like this. It says, uh, your accent in a language is a lot like physical attractiveness. Some try to argue it doesn't matter, and in an ideal world, it wouldn't. But deep down, we all know people judge you based on it. And so my basic reaction to reading this tweet is that in one sense, it's definitely true. <laughs> it's almost unarguable that if you're honest with yourself, yes, you and everybody else do initially judge people based on physical attractiveness, even if you don't want to. That's a, sub a subconscious thing that, that happens. And the same is true of accent. It's the first thing that you notice. And also the fact that like it would be better if that wasn't the case, but the fact is that it is the case. I'd add a couple of caveats, and I wonder what you think about my caveats. So the first caveat is that I think that it is possible to get to a level where you sound phenomenal in a language and that other people, their instant judgment of you it, when you speak that language is that you sound phenomenal, even though you don't have close to a native accent. And there's a couple of examples of this in English. One of them is Yanis Varoufakis, the Greek, former Greek finance minister, a politician, whatever you think of his politics, he clearly comes across immediately as like the most eloquent speaker, but you know, despite the fact that he has like the thickest Greek accent. Um, so that's my first caveat. And the second caveat that I want to get into is is that I'm not sure whether having a native level accent is a significant advantage when it comes to doing things that really matter to a lot of people who are learning languages, for example, establishing close friendships and that kind of thing. I wonder what your views, what your take is on, on my reaction to your tweet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would agree for the most part. When I made that tweet, I didn't mean to imply that you need to have a native accent. Otherwise, you know, something you're in a really bad position. What I meant more is that, you know, foreign accents are a whole spectrum. And if you have a really thick accent, that is going to cause a lot of problems. Like for me the other day, I, wanted, I, I was doing a language experiment and I tried listening to a Michelle Thomas tape. I don't know if you've ever listened to one of those. And I had to turn it off after five minutes because I, I didn't like listening to his accent. It literally took more brain, like a lot of additional brain power for me to just understand what he was saying. And I, it was it was an unpleasant experience, and I think this is all true, right? If, if you're if someone's accent is too thick, then it just you have to use like 10, 20 percent extra brain power just to comprehend what they're saying, and and that's not a pleasant experience on just a visceral level. So, and on a sense, if you have a really thick accent in a foreign language, and it depends what the accent is, right? Some accents happen to sound nicer than other accents. Like, I personally 
think, you know, French and German accents sound kind of nice, but when a Chinese or a Japanese person speaks English, I just find their accents when they're too thick to be more unpleasant. So there's it 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 depends on the language. It's it's you can't say it all, you know, accents wholesale, but you know, a lot I think it's a pretty common experience to find trying to understand somebody who speaks it and an accent too thick to be an unpleasant experience. And so th there there is that. I think on the other end, right, you can have a subtle accent but overall have very clear pronunciation and have it be, you know, be completely perceived as charming and not take away from your pronunciation or not take away from your English ability in any way or your language ability. Uh, I also think, though, that it also depends on the language, because in English, for example, English is a very multicultural language. It's a kind of international language. So most English speakers, native or not, are, are used to hearing English English spoken with many different accents. And so it's very common for people to perceive certain accents as charming or intelligent sounding in English. But in Japanese, Japanese people are not used to hearing Japanese spoken with foreign accents. And so if you speak Japanese with foreign sounding accent, then that, that has, a, I think, a lot stronger effect on their mind and perceiving you as an outsider, a foreigner who's not going to understand them. And it really does create a, a kind of barrier that you have to overcome. And again, this barrier is something that you can overcome, right? It's not like if you have an accent, you can't make friends with Japanese people, but it's it's like a little extra step you have to go through every time you meet somebody. Whereas, and, and I've personally experienced that as my pronunciation got better, the time it would take for a Japanese person to kind of let their guard down and really look at me like another human being rather than just an American would, would get shorter and shorter. And and I, I felt that that visceral benefit. So it wasn't like before I couldn't become friends with the Japanese people, but it was before it was, it was like I had to jump through three hoops before I, I could actually feel like we're seeing eye to eye. And then it became two hoops and then one hoop. And then now it feels like it's it's way more natural. And of course, I will point out that, yes, there are some Japanese people who will treat you like a foreigner, even if you have literally perfect Japanese just because you look white. Yes, there are basically racist Japanese people like that, of course, but um, I'm, on average, I would find that my experience has gotten better and better, the better that my Japanese accent has gotten. So I think, yeah, it's it's uh, overall pretty undeniable that your accent matters. Like you said, in a way, the, the gist of the tweet is it was kind of this interesting tweet where I knew every it was going to piss a lot of people off, even though in a way it's something completely obvious and, and innocuous. <laughs> But uh, yeah, and the other aspect of, of what you pointed out is, uh, of course, people have different different goals and different motivations, and it's not going to make sense for everybody in every situation to, to work really hard on their accent. But I do think that overall, there's kind of the, the it, it, it's something that's come along with the kind of social justice, like let's accept everybody for how they are type of movement that's been happening in the culture that, you know, there's certain obvious facts that we can't say anymore. And one of these obvious facts is if your accent sucks, you're not fun to listen to. And so this is something we all know it deep down, but for some reason it's become taboo to say. So that's why I just, I'm tempted to like, you know, pop that button and, and just say it, you know? Yeah. There's a, it's interesting because uh, there's a blog called Hacking Chinese, which is one of the leading blogs for learning Mandarin. And in it, he points out that for Mandarin, the problem tends to be that people don't work on their pronunciation enough. They give up working on their pronunciation be before the point that they've become comprehensible. And this is because of the additional problem with 
with tones that are unlike pitch accent. If you don't have good tones, then people can't understand you. In terms of the second caveat, I've heard you say before that you feel that reaching a near native level of pronunciation in Japanese has helped you to bridge cultural gaps to make friends more easily, perhaps. I have some experience of this because like I was brought up bilingual in Spanish. I had like two native accents for free kind of thing from an early age. And I took that completely for granted until I started learning Mandarin. But now I realize what a gift that is. And there is definitely something to the idea of just being able to come across as one of the group from the beginning, like right off the bat, as soon as you open your mouth, you're seen as like one of us kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And actually, for, for me and my experience in Japanese, I, I think a lot of Japanese people. So, you know, I've most of my experience with Japanese has been within the United States. So I also have met a lot of Japanese people online as well. But the Japanese people I've spent time with face to face has been over here in the United States. And so most of the Japanese people that I've met, they all really struggle with English because they don't no one has really introduced them to immersion learning. So they, they try to learn purely through basically translating Japanese texts into English, which is not an effective approach. So a lot of Japanese people have lived in the US for multiple years or they've gone to school here for multiple years and they still really struggle with English. And so they, they almost develop a fear of foreigners that I've noticed where when someone walks up to them with a white face, they almost like they, they freeze up because they have this, it's like, PTSD for them. Oh no, I'm going to have to speak English again. I'm not going to understand them. They're not going to understand me. It's going to be this super awful, uncomfortable experience that I've done. I've experienced over and over again. So a lot of times when I see a Japanese person, you know, just on the, the side of the road, I go talk to them. When they see my face, a lot of times they'll have this reaction. I can see it's like a literally like a tra traumatic fear reaction in their whole body. I can see it. But when I start talking to them and I speak in Japanese, then that will change. Because then they'll, when they realize, oh, I don't have to speak English. Oh, they're actually going to understand me. I don't have to like, we're not, it's not going to be like trying to talk to somebody who I can't hear across the other side of the room and have this, you know, awful, confusing experience. And so it immediately changes the, the vibe in the interaction, if you know what I mean, right? And it's like, it's, it's such a clear night and day difference that in terms of like really making friends, it's, it's so key. And the other thing is that like I've been dating a Japanese girl for two years now. We talk almost every day on the phone. We only speak in Japanese. And it's hard for me to imagine that if I had like a really thick foreign accent and it took extra brain power to understand that she would like want to talk to me like every day that amount of time, it would probably just be a little more, it would be exhausting, right? And more taxing. So I just think, you know, the, 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 the better, the more you sound like a native speaker, then the the less brain power the other, the native speaker has to use to understand you, and 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 it's not also just the act of understanding you; it's also the confidence they get that they can speak normally, and you will actually understand them, because a lot of times if you have a thick accent, then the first thing that the other that the the native speaker thinks is, is he going to understand me? How much do I have to dumb down my speech? Is he going to understand this word? Is he going to understand that word? And that also makes it really taxing on them, right? So even if you have a thick accent, eventually you can prove your competence and prove that they don't have to dumb down their speech to you if, if you if you do have that level of comprehension. But it will take a while of this kind of like, you know, them having to feel it out before they really trust your, your comprehension. Whereas for whatever reason, when you sound native, then or at least really close to native, native speakers have this immediate sense of, oh, he's going to he he got it. He has it. Like, I can just say anything. He's going to know what I mean. 
there's a question related to this that I really want to ask you as uh, somebody who's not studying Japanese, which is that there's a viral video that you must have seen um, on YouTube about which kind of depicts a situation in which there are a group of friends in Japan and only one of the friends can ethnically pass as Japanese. And that happens to be the only one among the group who can't speak any Japanese. The others are, there's a, a black guy and the rest are uh, white people who speak absolutely flawless, fluent Japanese. And then the waitress comes over to take their order. They're sitting at a restaurant. And when she does that, she goes straight to the one who looks Japanese, who can't speak any Japanese, uh, who then lets her know that she doesn't speak any Japanese. And then one by one, the rest of the friends, they all try and uh, take the order in flawless Japanese. But because they don't look Japanese, the waitress just refuses to accept that they could possibly be speaking Japanese and just keeps saying, I don't understand, I don't understand, and turning to the one that looks Japanese but can't speak any Japanese. Is, is that something that actually happens? <laughs> yeah, well, so of course, yes, I have seen this video. And again, I haven't lived in Japan since I've been fluent in Japanese, so I can't say anything firsthand. But what, based on my experience and talking to other people, I think what happens is <clears throat> every once in a while, there will be the odd semi-racist Japanese person who is like this. When I say racist, I don't mean they have any negative intentions. They're kind of like a a racist due to pure ignorance, right? They just have this assumption that foreigners can't speak Japanese and they don't have any negative intentions, but it's just some weird mental block that they have. So maybe, you know, one, one in 50 Japanese people have this block. And when you're living in Japan and you're speaking Japanese all day, every day, because you're fluent Japanese and you live in Japan, then that one in 50 people who you meet, who's really annoying like that, probably, you know, has a, a lot of presence in your mind, right? It's like really annoying. And because a lot of times the way humans tend to be, right, we take everything that works for granted and then we complain the rest of the time about the, the few things that, that don't work. I, I also think that a lot of the foreigners complaining about this are don't actually have a native sounding accent. They probably mess up their pitch accent all the time and they, they probably have a pretty thick foreign accent and they would have that experience less if they actually did have a more native accent. Also sentence structure, right? Like in Chinese, my experience has been because the sentence structures are so different that if you haven't had enough input, if you're not familiar enough with the language yet, but you're trying to say things anyway and trying to express yourself, you can often feel like you've not broken any rule of grammar. You've not done anything wrong. You've maybe even got all the tones right, but you, they're just looking back at you like completely like blank faced, uh, have no idea what you just said. And I used to have that experience quite a lot. I don't really have it anymore. But like the reason was because the sentence structure was kind of unorthodox. And if they're not used to dealing with foreigners who are relying on English grammar to speak Asian languages. Yeah, yeah. No, that definitely happens in, in Japanese as well. Like all the time I see Japanese learners like on Twitter trying to write tweets in Japanese and they're just clearly they're thinking in English and literally translating it. And it doesn't it doesn't make sense in Japanese. Like sometimes there are Japanese sentences that I can understand, but Japanese people can't. And the only reason I understand it is because I can translate it into English in my head. And then I only get it once I put it back into English. So that's definitely a thing that, that happens all the time. But two thoughts that I have is that generally, if you're it's, it's very rare for somebody to achieve a native like accent, but then still have not figured out how to how to phrase things in a natural way. It's pretty much I've never I mean, it's possible, but I, I've never really come across somebody like that because in general in order to have a native like accent you have to have gotten so much input that by the by the time you get there you've also figured out how to how to phrase things naturally so generally it's kind of like that when we're talking about accents it's kind of like we're, we're taking for granted the importance of 
being able to phrase things naturally. But of course, that is really important. But the other thing is that I think even like as as a basically your your accent gives you away faster than your your phrasing does, because if you say like a single word in a in a foreign accent. That's something that native speakers never do. Whereas grammar mistakes are something that native speakers will make occasionally. And so if you make one or two grammar mistakes, probably the other person will just look past it. They'll think you just stumbled on your words or or something like that. You'll have to make a probably like a couple in a row before. And this is assuming they're relatively small, right? If they're if they're so egregious to the point that they can't understand what you're saying, that's a different story, but you know, if you if you make a couple small, say a couple small unnatural things, they can fly under the radar, assuming that your accent is really, really good. Whereas if you just like butcher the pronunciation of a word or you say something in a really foreign accent, then that's like immediate giveaway, if you know what I mean. Well, but I think it depends on the kind of mistake, though, right? Because like there are kind of grammar mistakes that like natives just wouldn't make. And I think that they are just instant giveaways, just on the same level as a uh, pronunciation mistake that natives wouldn't make. Well, I think it depends a lot on the situation. I think that pronunciation has such a strong effect on the on the minds of the listener that in in the moment where you hear someone say something that sounds completely wrong in a native accent, what happens is there's a cognitive dissonance in the minds of the native speaker. It's like, I just heard something that shouldn't have happened. I just saw, I just heard the impossible. That's what it feels like. So I think the first time that happens, they might just ignore it as a, just because they don't know how else to resolve their cognitive dissonance. It's really like they it's like they're le they're going to lean one way or the other. They're, they're going to lean to the side of, oh, wait, are you actually a foreigner? Or they're going to lean to the side of, I think I just hallucinated. I'm going to pretend it didn't happen. I think like it's 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 true because like I'm just reflecting on this now. I think if you if you do have a near native or native level accent, you can get away with murder. Like in in my case in Spanish, like I feel like I can get away with so much more on in terms of making like I won't really make pronunciation mistakes, but I will make like the odd grammar mistake. But I feel I can just get away with it. Yeah, I, th I think it just has to do with the fact that we associate accent with identity so much. It's on an unconscious level. It's so rare for, for for a foreigner to have a native accent that if you we just associate native pronunciation with native speaker, and it, it's it's it takes something pretty strong to break out of that frame for a native speaker, and so I think that's a good way to put it. You can get away with with murder. The other thing is that it, it can also sometimes turn out that uh, you they will think that something's weird, but rather than assuming that you're a foreigner, they'll assume that you that there's just something wrong with you, that you're just a native speaker with a who's has a mental disability or it's just really weird so it's not all, always a good thing sometimes you end up in this uncanny valley where like I've, I've been in that position where i remember one time i i, I called like a like a uh, one of those like technical hotlines and the person who, who i was talking to it took me a while to decide like are you just an amazing english amazing english learner or are you a native speaker with like a, a mental disability like <laughs> and I, I never could really decide. And you never found out, I guess. I uh, know, I didn't want to ask. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to touch on, you did an interview with Ollie Richards, which I was listening to, and you said in that interview that one of the biggest, he asked you what what was what, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about you. And it's interesting because you mentioned a misconception that until you mentioned that it was a misconception, it was definitely one that I held about you, which was that you went from not outputting at all because for the first few years of learning Japanese or for the first long while of learning Japanese, you were just inputting. And then when you had a very high level of comprehension, you began outputting and that this kind of transition happened very smoothly and very quickly, uh, almost like within like the space of a week or something, you were like completely perfect. Could you expand on what that process was, was really like? Basically for the first 
two years of doing massive input, I did very little output. And when I was about at the two year mark, I had a spontaneous opportunity to use Japanese. I got offered to be this, do this kind of tour guide job where I'd guide Japanese people who were visiting America around my city. And so that was the first time I'd spoken Japanese in over a year. And I found that right off the bat, I was pretty fluent in Japanese. Like I could say most of the things that I wanted to say in a pretty natural way. And I could have conversations, no problem. So in, in one sense, I did basically go from zero to basic fluency overnight, you could say. But really, like if I were going to examine my, you know, samples of my output from this, this period here, I still made a lot of mistakes. I said things that were relatively unnatural. There were also, I remember times where, you know, I would, I would say something that was a little bit different than what I really wanted to say, because you know, it, it, I had to always be making these compromises of like, do I try to express what I really want to say, but I but say it in a possibly unnatural way, or do I say something similar that I that I know what to say, confidently, and and a lot of times I'd have to, you know, if if I wanted to express a more complicated idea, I'd have to like think about it for a couple minutes before I said it. So if I like I had to like load up the next conversation I was gonna say during a period where no one was talking, and then kind of like prepare for it. So. I, I was pretty limited in my ability, and I don't think I sounded close to a native speaker in that sense. I still sounded probably like a very, very good learner. Like most people who study Japanese never really get to a point of fluency. So I, I already at that point was probably better than most foreigners that they had ever talked to or interacted with before. I was at a pretty impressive level, but I was still very limited in, in what I could talk about and the level of accuracy and, and naturalness to my speech. And then after that brief one week job of being the temporary tour guide, I went back to doing all input all the time. And so I went back for basically another year of doing just input. And then I transferred to a, a different university where there was a lot of Japanese foreign exchange students. So that was when I actually started doing input or doing output regularly. So that was at the three year mark of doing input all the time. So when I what I found is that over that last year, I had significantly improved. It, I, it was a lot easier to speak and I felt I sounded a lot more natural when I spoke. So it, that kind of confirmed even more of like, yeah, I, the more input that I get, the better my output gets, even though I'm not practicing output. But at that point, I actually started hanging out with Japanese people and speaking more often. And the more that I spoke, then the more effortless it became and the more natural that it became and the more fluent and and like, the more I would really flow with the conversation, be able to go off the cuff and keep up with natural conversation. So it definitely took a lot of practice to get to the point where, uh, you know, I, I was I was at my peak of fluency. And all of that was before I studied pitch accent. We ended up not really talking about the process of me fixing my pitch accent. But basically, it was after I spent a year hanging out with my with Japanese kids at university all the time, speaking Japanese all the time. And I was about four years into my all Japanese all the time period that I really started to realize that there was this gaping hole in my Japanese, which was pitch accent. And then I went and started learning about that and kind of consciously changing the way that I spoke. And that took a lot of practice. That was a really long process of basically retraining the entire way that I speak to speak with the right pitch accent. So in a way, you could probably say I got like, you know, 70% of my output ability just through input. And then the 30% of kind of polishing that hat came from actually practicing it. And the biggest difference I would say is the that it became more effort the more that I practiced, the more effortless that it became, the higher and the higher that my accuracy became. Like at the beginning I would have these weird experiences where 
for the first like 30 minutes of speaking Japanese, I would sound really good. And then my brain would get exhausted and I would suddenly start to sound like worse and worse and worse really quickly. Whereas the more I practiced, then the, the more consistent and the longer periods of time I could keep up. And of course, I started to be able to speak a little bit more eloquently and things like that. So on one hand, it is kind of like I went from, you know, zero to fluency overnight without any, just through input. So that is pretty mir miraculous thing from a lot of people's perspective who, because in my opinion, most language learners undervalue input and overvalue output. But of course, at the same time, it's not like I, I people look at my level today, it's not like I achieved that just through input, that, that it was that all that input combined with then a lot of output practice to really polish it up. Tell us a bit more then about how that process, what that process was like of working on, on the pitch accent and, and what you did in order to get better at that. Yeah, so the first thing that I did was just try to train myself to hear it because at the beginning, I, I, I didn't hear pitch accent at all. And it, it was funny because there were signs for a while that something was, was missing. Like I remember one time I was hanging out with my Japanese friends and there was one of our friends in the friends group who was from a different part of Japan than everyone else. And there was one time where she said the word for shoes and then everyone kind of like laughed at her and, and was like, what did you just say? It's, 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 it's kutsu, not kutsu. And, and they were all, they were like, thought that what she said sounded so weird. But for me, it sounded totally normal. I had no idea what they were talking about. So I just felt totally like out of the loop, but I, I never knew what that was. And then like a year later, I figured out basically through asking my Japanese friend, like, Hey, what, what about my Japanese? Like gives me away that I'm not a native speaker. And then that's when they, they kind of told me, but yeah. So the first thing was just, well, I need to hear this thing. Cause it, it sound I feel like, you know, everyone else is like a dog that's hearing some frequency I'm not hearing. So. I learned what the, the four pitch, pack, pitch accent patterns were, and I learned what the most common words in each pattern was. And then whenever I listen to Japanese, I just try to hear the word being pronounced as the pattern. And kind of, you know, if I heard a word that I knew was supposed to be, you know, pattern A, I just would listen for it. And okay, did it really sound like how the description sounded? And through doing that, I was able to train myself to hear the patterns. And this, I think, happened pretty quickly because I did have a really strong foundation in listening to Japanese. I'd listened to it for thousands of hours. So I probably was able to train myself to hear it quicker than someone who was totally new to Japanese. And the more that I went through this process of paying attention to pitch accent whenever I listened to Japanese, the more it became clearer and clearer and started to get to the point where it was like, holy crap, how did I not hear this before? This is so obvious, like started to be like whenever I heard Japanese, that's all I could notice was there's these huge fluctuations in pitch all the time. And it started to, to be really crazy to me that I missed out on it. And when I started to notice the interesting thing was, and this is this was true of me and true of other foreigners, is that, um, well, let me take a step step back and say that across Japan, there's different dialects of Japanese and different dialects of Japanese have different pitch accent systems. And so that's one argument that people use to try to say that pitch accent doesn't matter. It's like, oh, well, just even Japanese people speak with different pitch accent. But the thing is, when someone is, is speaks a different dialect of pitch accent, their dialect is still internally consistent. So whenever they pronounce a given word, they always pronounce that word in the same way. Right. So, you know, if they, if they were going to say like arigato, they always say arigato in that way. They never say they don't, they don't sometimes say arigato and sometimes say arigato or something like that. But for me in my Japanese, I would pronounce the same word different with different patterns, sometimes with even within the same sentence. And this is something I notice most foreigners do. So they were completely lacking a whole concept of pitch accent at all. Like we, we were, it was literally like 
my brain thought that any word could be pronounced with any pattern. I didn't realize there was a relationship between the two. But the interesting thing was I never, I generally never pronounced things in a pattern that didn't exist. So all the words I said, I said with one of the four pitch accent patterns that exists in Japanese with one of the natural intonation patterns. Just, just a lot of times it was the wrong one. So it was like my brain knew that these melodies existed, but it didn't realize that certain melodies have to go with certain words. It thought that any word could go with any melody, if that makes sense. And so it was really just a matter of training myself to notice like, oh, this melody always goes with this word. And I, I my hope was if I would just train my intuition, if, if I just listened to it enough, my intuition would naturally like accommodate pitch accent and I would go on it to speak with pitch accent naturally. But I tried that for a while and it didn't work. Like my pitch accent probably improved a little bit, but I think I had so many bad habits that I had made from speaking Japanese with the wrong pitch accent over and over and over. And also from reading, I think as well, because I had done a ton of reading. And whenever you're reading, you're subvocalizing, meaning you're pronouncing the language internally inside of your head. And I was pronouncing it with the wrong pitch accent over and over. And so I think, uh, yeah, I had all these bad habits that prevented input alone from being enough to even when I was paying attention to the pitch accent for that to be enough for it to really change the way that I spoke because the way I spoke was pretty solidified so I had to basically go through a process of just whenever I spoke Japanese consciously making sure that I said it with the right pitch accent and I had to basically do what Stephen Krashen says is mon use a monitor right where if I was going to go to say something I'd have to check and say okay am I saying this with the right pitch accent and a lot of times I notice what my, my intuition was, the way that I wanted to say it naturally, I knew through what I'd studied was the wrong pitch accent. So I had to consciously like say it in the right way. And I was able to say it in the right way because again, I, I had I knew all the different patterns in Japanese. I just, they were already inside of me. I just had the pat the wrong patterns. I didn't have the patterns mixed up to the right words. So when I, I could, it was almost like when, when I stopped and noticed that I was about to pronounce it the wrong way and reflected on it, I could almost hear a Japanese voice pronouncing it the right way. But it just took me a second of like reflecting on it and remembering what I had studied. So I basically had to go through this process of whenever I spoke Japanese, deliberately making sure that I said it the right way and doing that over and over and over again until basically saying it the right way became my habit. And I didn't have to really think about it anymore because it was just my default way of pronouncing anything that I wanted to say. But that took a really long time, and I'm still definitely not at a hundred percent perfect accuracy. But it's definitely like night and day difference compared to my Japanese from a couple of years ago. When you decided to improve your pitch accent, what kind of reaction did you get from people around you? Because one thing I found was that when I said to my Chinese friends that I wanted to work really hard on tones, which was about coming up to a year ago now when I made that decision. At that time, like my tones were like not good at all, but maybe even slightly above average for, for what uh, native speakers are used to listening to from foreigners, which is almost completely, in many cases, atonal. Um, so a lot of my friends were kind of like, their reaction was like, why are you bothering with this? Like, we can basically understand you and like, uh, your accent's fine. I mean, obviously you don't sound at all native, but like, that's impossible to achieve. So there's no point in, in bothering. Like, what kind of reaction did you get when you said that you wanted to, to work on that? Well, the reaction was different from my close Japanese friends and from the Japanese people who I just kind of knew a little bit, but they didn't know me very well because my close Japanese friends, they knew that I had this like crazy passion for trying to get perfect Japanese that 
that was literally like like a manic crazy person who just had an obsession they knew i was like that because before that i had my the area of japanese i i dove really deeply into was reading literature reading novels even reading like classical japanese from hundreds of years ago and so i knew lots of words that japanese my japanese friends didn't know and i could read characters that they couldn't read so they already knew i was kind of like this crazy person that was going to go to any length possible to get to achieve my goal so to them i don't think they were that surprised they were just like oh of course that's what matt would do but for people who didn't know me as well of course they were like oh you're already you're you're so good already you don't need to get any better you're already so good you should just go to japan and teach japanese people how to speak english but i i just instantly ignored them of course because i was like oh you don't know what you're talking about yeah yeah that, that sounds familiar you are often associated in people's minds as a strong crashinite but i've also heard in various interviews and there's a couple of things that have come out today as well that suggest that you also have some differences with with Krashen. Um and Krashen is obviously the author of the input hypothesis which basically says that the best way to acquire a language is to is to have as much comprehensible input as possible to listen from the beginning to as much comprehensible audio and read as much comprehensible material as possible in order to get the language in you and that we acquire languages through input not through output not through speaking so my understanding is you largely agree with that but there are some differences as well could you sort of outline what they are yeah yeah so i think there, there are in a sense a lot of things that i disagree with but the things that we agree on are so fundamental that it's almost like all the disagreements are like little asterisks underneath the the main conclusion so that's why i still do talk a lot about Krashen because his main thesis that basically input is the most important factor in learning a language and everything else is secondary ultimately I, I think that's the best starting place when you're thinking about learning a language and almost every other linguist who studies language acquisition that I've seen undervalues input and overvalues output and so Krashen is the best starting point even though he has many many flaws in my opinion and so my kind of really high level summary of Krashen's view on language acquisition is that basically adults are the same as infants and infants learn languages to a native level entirely through input. And so adults should be the same, just get enough input and you'll achieve a native level. He never really explicitly talks about achieving a native level. So I don't know if he really thinks this or not, but he never, he never says anything else besides just get input period. That's the, that's the end of the story of language learning. Whereas in my view, I think that input is not enough to reach a native level. Input is enough to reach a level of fluency. That was my experience. But if you want to reach a true native level for the reasons that we've talked about, right? Our brains optimize themselves for our native language throughout the first 10 years of our life. And by the time you're an adult and you want to learn a, a new language, your brain has completely optimized itself for, an art, in my case, English, right? And because of this, I wasn't able to acquire pitch accent very easily, for example. And so I think one of the, the there, there are certain differences between infants and adults. One of the biggest being the, the sound system, but also it goes beyond this, right? There's things that, like I know when people learn European languages, they have trouble acquiring the grammatical genders and getting that accurately all the time. And there's other things that basically whenever something's not in your native language can be really hard to acquire. So I think there's going to be times where input alone isn't enough and you have to go beyond that and do basically what I did to pitch accent to do some kind of active training 
to train a new habit into the way that you use the language in order to make up for any things that f fell through the cracks of the input. And I also think that, for example, we what we already talked about, I think that there's that there are certain aspects in which reading can actually have negative effects. If you read really early on, it really biases the way you hear the language. It can make it harder for you to go on to have a native accent. Whereas that's not something I've ever heard Krashen mention. Krashen seems to be a really big proponent of reading. And so I don't I don't think he would agree with, with this. So that's one difference. Although again, infants only learn how to read once they've already learned their native language to fluency through just listening. So in general, I, I think that it's a really, it, it's kind of similar to the idea that if you want to know what's what's going to be healthy for a human, look at what our ancestors did before modern civilization. And that's going to give you the answer like 90% of the time, although there's some exceptions. Similar thing is if you want to get to a native level, well, look at how infants get to a native level. And that's going to tell you the right approach to take in like 90% of cases. So this would include maybe learn how to speak the language just through listening and then learn how to read afterwards. One exception that goes into that 10% is what we talked about with the the hearing the sounds where natives can hear the sounds of every language adults can't so we have to kind of compensate for that so overall i'd say those are the main differences i think that yeah you want to ideally learn as much as you can through listening in the beginning and, and kind of avoid reading and i also think that there's just going to be some things that fall through the cracks and also maybe i think a third component that we haven't really talked about today but it's also something that i've i've come to think is more and more important in the last year is that you're psychological motivation for learning a language has a really big impact on how quickly you're going to acquire it. And when I say motivation, I mean something that I, I mean something very broad. I mean both the the general sense people mean like are you motivated to wake up early and work hard, that type of motivation. But I also mean from your subconscious mind's point of view, does it matter to learn this language or not? And I think this is a really big factor in, in language acquisition in general, even for infants. Because, of course, it's a really common phenomenon for somebody to be a heritage speaker of a language where like in maybe a similar case, it sounds like you were able to not have you were able to avoid having this experience. But a lot of people, you know, they will they'll grow up in the United States to, for example, Chinese parents and the Chinese parents speak to them in Chinese. And for the first couple of years of their life, they they can speak Chinese back to the parents. But then once they start going to school and they learn English and they realize that their parents understand English, then they stop being able to speak Chinese. And by the time they're an adult, they, they can understand Chinese, but they can't speak it anymore. And I think the best explanation for this is the brain is very efficient. So if the brain determines that Chinese isn't necessary to survive because everyone in your environment understands English, then it's not going to use, it's not going to pay the metabolic cost to maintain China, the ability to speak Chinese. And so I think because acquiring a language is probably a very metabolically taxing process from the brain's point of view, it, the brain has to really be convinced that it's important and, and maybe even necessary to learn the language in order for it to then go in and ex expend all of the resources necessary to run all of the pattern recognition and, and all of the, the changes in the brain and all the learning necessary to really acquire a language. So that's why I, I think you know, the, the old wisdom of just go and live in a country and you'll pick it up. I think, although there's a lot of problems with that, there's some wisdom to it in the sense of if you're truly in an environment where you need the language to survive and your brain really understands that on a visceral level, then the, your motivation to acquire the language is going to be so strong that that might have a, a bigger effect on your the success of your language learning than whether or not you're using truly efficient learning techniques or not. There was one other 
point that you wanted to come back to, I think, uh, that you mentioned earlier. Can you remember what that was? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of the reason why people have a lot of resistance to this idea of talking about the importance of an accent is because they feel really overwhelmed by the language learning process already. And so it kind of feels like you're just stacking another thing on top of their like long to-do list of things they have to do. Like they have to learn grammar, they have to learn vocabulary, and, and they're already overwhelmed by that. So they really want to believe that they don't have another thing that is important that they need to worry about. And so I, and I can totally empathize with that. So I empathize with, I think, a lot of the motivation that, that is, is behind this. But the, the, the biggest reason I want to push back against that is because working on your pronunciation is really one and the same with working on your ability to hear the language. Because the, the most important factor in having a good accent is ca can you actually hear what natives are saying properly? If you can truly hear what they're saying and you, ha and you have an ear for it and you're tuned in to what's going on, then imitating it yourself is, is, doesn't take that much work. It comes pretty naturally. And so if you work early on, like, you're, like the friend that, that you mentioned on training your ears to be at, and your mouth to be able to really replicate the sounds of the language early on, then after that, picking up the language is going to come much more quickly than it, than it would otherwise. So, so it's a really good investment all around for your language learning, not just for your pronunciation. And so that's why there's this kind of idea that pronunciation is something that you should, if you ever want to work on it, work on it at the end of the language learning process. It's kind of like the icing on the cake. But first of all, that's actually the, the most difficult time to work on it in a sense, because you already, if you trying to change bad habits that you already have, or you're trying to just change habits in general is very difficult. So it's easier to learn the right habits earlier on when you're still new to the language. But also learning learning how to hear the sounds of the language at a really accurate level early on will enable you to acquire the language through listening much more quickly anyway. So that's why I think there's kind of this paradigm shift that, that ideally would happen in the community where we stop neglecting the importance of both list, of training our ears and training our mouth and put a lot more weight on that. I think a lot of things will fall into place because indeed when we look at infants, I think research has shown that prosody and the pronunciation of the language is, is really the first thing that they acquire when learning a language. And like I said, generally, the more that you replicate what an infant's doing, then you're gonna have infant-like results. Do you think though that there are some people who have a very strong aptitude for pronunciation, for mimicking, that kind of thing, and other people on the other end of the spectrum who don't at all, and for whom this kind of time investment might actually be a waste of time because there's limits to which, the, 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 the extent to which they might be able to improve their accent is ultimately limited at quite a low level? Well. If we think about specifically training our ears to hear the sounds of the language, then, well, first of all, in all aspects of related to pronunciation, I do think that there's a range of natural ability. So it comes very quickly to some people and it comes a lot more difficult, difficultly to other people. And especially people who have musical training or like vocal training, they tend to be able to pick it up much more quickly, of course. But ultimately, if you want to be able to be fluent in a language, then having good listening ability is totally crucial, right? Like you can't have a conversation with somebody if you can't understand what they're saying. And if you can't clearly hear the sounds of the language, that's going to be a huge impediment to you developing really strong listening ability. So in a way, if someone ha doesn't have a lot of natural ability, I almost want to say they should be doing it even more than someone. It's kind of like there's this meditation quote of like, I can't meditate because I, I can't, I'm, I'm too busy. It's like, okay, well then you should meditate twice as much as everybody else <laughs> type of thing. 
Okay, but it, but are you not conflating two different types of listening? Like, it's possible for somebody to be extremely competent, and there are people like this, like extremely, extremely competent at like listening in the sense of comprehension, but yet have extremely strong accents because they're not that competent at being able to you know pick out and mimic very uh, the details of the sound. Yeah, I, well, I think a lot of that comes about due to the way that you learn the language because the the way I think about it is kind of like we when you listen to a new dialect of a language you're already fluent in your brain goes through a process of learning how to basically translate or convert this new dialect into the dialect you already speak so for example i'm an american and when i hear british english in a way i understand it all but in a way what my brain is doing is just translating the british english into the american english that i have in my head <laughs> And because of this... Is that what's happening now? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's, so because of this, this is why even though if I listen to a ton of British English, it doesn't change the way that I speak American English. And so it's it's like my brain is almost viewing it as a different dialect. And because of that, it, it doesn't, doesn't have a lot of influence on the way that I personally speak. If I spoke to you for like 100 hours, then I'd probably start to pick, you know, pick up on some of the things that you do. But it'd be a very, very slow process. Whereas I noticed for Japanese, I, my Japanese will be very influenced very readily by the type of Japanese I've been listening to recently and who I've been talking to. So I think it, it depends on whether your brain is, there's two different processes. There's one where your brain's taking the input in and viewing it as like, this is a sample of the same dialect that I speak. And then you're very influenced by it very easily versus there's a, a different process that happens when your brain's viewing this as, oh, this is a different dialect and I'm translating into my dialect. And I think when people learn mainly through reading or through text, there, even though when you're learning through text, you're pronouncing it in your head to yourself. So it's almost like you make up an alternate version of the spoken language that's based on the phonetic system of, of your native language in your head. And then when you learn how to listen, your brain goes through this translation process where it translates the native version of speaking into your, you know, your unique dialect of the language that you made up yourself through learning the language through text. And I think that's why there, you, there's people who end up with really high comprehension because their brain is really adept at this translation process. But no matter how much they listen, it doesn't actually change their internal model of the language because their brain is just translating it from, from one into the other, if that makes sense. Whereas if you, if you learn mainly through, through listening at the beginning so that you end up with having a model in your head to begin with that matches the model that the natives have, then naturally when you'll speak, you'll end up with a, a better accent. So it's kind of two different issues of, for people who already have a foreign accent, is it worth it for them to go and try to change their pronunciation? Because that's actually a much harder thing than changing your, if you're gonna learn a new language, making sure you take an approach that will naturally lead to you having good pronunciation. So the demand is like, it's not, it's not quite that you're asking people to do what you did. It's more like to not do what you did and instead like start off doing the right things and that, and. Yes, it's basically like I'm basically saying, take me as a cautionary tale and, you know, the don't end up what I did was so much work. I wouldn't expect most people to be willing to do that. But I think that if you do it first thing early on, then it's it's a lot. It's actually more doable, basically. Like I, I would recommend people to do something similar to what your friend did, who has a, a native Beijing accent, I think that it, it, it's something that I would really encourage people to view as a as a extremely valuable upfront investment of within if you can take a couple months early on you spend you know in a half hour to an hour a day really drilling the pronunciation I think then 
in a way you're 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 paying the entire price of a native accent up front in this condensed period of months and then after that it's going to be really smooth sailing perfect well that's been fascinating and it's been a really long conversation we covered loads of different topics but it's been well worth it so once again thank you very much for coming on the podcast yeah it was really fun thanks for having me So that's it for this week and another episode of the I'm Learning Mandarin podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then you can go to imlearningmandarin.com and subscribe to have new blogs and podcasts pinged straight to your email. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Anchor. So until next week, goodbye.